Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast, thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. Hi, this is Craig Morton, aka Crash Test Craig. I haven't been called that for a while. On this podcast, we've been silent for some time, but now, with so much to talk about, it's time to seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. So today, in fact, it was only yesterday that I decided to put up a podcast uh, from an interview that we had with uh, Melanie Springer-Mock that I believe was the spring of uh, March 2019. Um, and today, I mean, it's only, it's 24 hours after I posted that. And was thinking about the other interviews, other um these other conversations that I have uh, sitting on my computer. Uh, one of them is from November of 20, 000, uh, 2019. And then the other is from just a couple of months ago. And I think I'm going to put both of those together because they do have some similarities. They have some commonalities, I think, in some ways. And uh, hopefully, you know, it won't feel like it's too much to digest in, in one podcast. Um, you know, generally I want to make sure that keep these things, you know, under an hour makes it easier for people to listen to. But then sometimes you just get these um, great conversations, and then certain things go on in the world and in culture, and you just feel like you need to keep the conversation going, moving forward in some different ways, uh, maybe with some different ideas or some new information. And so I want to make sure that I give these two authors, writers, movement leaders uh, an opportunity to have their voices heard. And I'll share with you the conversations that I had uh, earlier this summer or earlier this spring, a couple months ago with Doug Paget, and also the conversation I had in November of uh, 2019 with Angela Denker. So, um, I'll say a little bit about those, uh, those, their work and what they're doing, and then we'll jump into uh, Angela's interview first, and then we'll jump into the conversation with Doug Padgett. Angela Danker's book is called Red State Christians, Understanding Voters Who Elected Donald Trump. Uh, I was fascinated when I saw this book title. I was vaguely familiar with the work of Angela Danker and had been following her on on Twitter uh, for for a time, mainly because she was bringing some interesting thoughts and uh, perspectives to sports and kind of being a little bit of a sports junkie. It was great to be be following her and reading uh, some of the things that she would write either like in a blog or some statements that were in her Twitter feed. Uh, it wasn't until later that I began to, or that I discovered, I realized that she's also a Lutheran pastor, and she has pastored in a number of different parishes in the United States, 
and now is residing in Minnesota, uh, which is the same place that Doug Paget uh, is, whose interview we'll be hearing in just a little bit. Uh, Angela Danker came out with this book, Red State Christians, and it's a wonderful series of, of observations, uh, qualitative kinds of uh, research, and stories, anecdotal narrative, that uh, kind of illumine why certain Christians would vote for Donald Trump. And for the most part, it's a very, it feels like a very open, genuine, compassionate conversation that Angela is having with, with folks in these different uh, parts of the country who reflect um, the title. They're red state Christians and they vote for Donald Trump. What, um, what was interesting was to find how compassionately and, and carefully she wanted to represent their views, yet at the same time uh, wanted to make sure that there was room for a critique and maybe some challenge about the fullness or the complexity of their Christian views, their Christian uh, understandings, and how that interacted with society in general. So, without much further ado, we're going to jump into the conversation I had with uh, Angela Danker in Red State Christians. So, um, Angela, very good to meet you, and I would like to maybe get a little get to know you a little bit bit a little bit better. I, I'm familiar with you of you from your your writings, your book recently. In fact, I started following you on Twitter some time ago, and I think it was because of the article on Colin Kaepernick. Yes, yeah, we have a shared sports connection. <laughs> we, we do, yeah, and um, sports are a big part of what I'm into, and it's kind of a connection that we try to try to pull together for our podcast. When, when we started mm -hmm. our podcast, we said, uh, well, a friend of mine who started it said, gee, who do I know who can talk about theology and sports? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it seems to be an overlooked um, connection in some ways, especially among progressive Christians. Yeah, uh, definitely. But so that's, so I had, I had started following you actually quite a while ago and, uh, out of that interest. And then when your name popped up recently, I think it was from the uh, Pulpit Fiction podcast. Oh, nice. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, did that, did that podcast interview of you air previous to the release of your book it might have been like the week before i'm trying to remember it was right my book came out in early august so it was right around then right right so I, that's and after listening to that interview about um red state christians i thought well, that's not only a fascinating interview um but it sounded like a fascinating book thank you so, <laughs> How, how did that how did that book uh, germinate how did it develop for you the idea for it yeah so um it's a bit of a story um <laughs> but i will say first of all that what i really loved about red state christians is it enabled me to take my sports writing past my journalism past um and combine that with my passion for theology for the gospel and um for using reporting and telling stories in other people's voices um, to also sort of illuminate what's happening in current American political events um, and connect that to what Jesus might think about that or what kind of guidance that Jesus might want to give for us in this time. 
Um, so the book really germinated, I would say, a really long time ago in, you know, my college study of journalism, but also I spent time interning um, for a congressman from Minnesota while I was in college. So I've always had an interest in politics as well. Um, and then I was serving a very large it was a Lutheran church, but it really operated more like a large evangelical um, sort of non-denominational style church. We had a band, we had screens, um, we had a really large church in Orange County, California during the uh, 2016 presidential election. And our church is also right next door to the Richard Nixon presidential library in a very, you know, conservative, wealthy, pretty white area of Orange County. Um, so I got to really see sort of among Orange County evangelicals um, in an area that spawned Rick Warren, that spawned the Crystal Cathedral. So many influential parts of evangelical Christianity come out of Orange County in Southern California. I got to see sort of the fallout from the election in my church community. Um, and so the initial pitch for the book was of a book called Bibles and Boob Jobs. <laughs> Focusing on Southern California. Is that it your did. chapter? We'll it see. survived as a chapter title, so I feel really vindicated by that. <laughs> um, but Fortress Press, you know, they were interested in that as a chapter, but they really wanted to take a nationwide look, and they loved that I had this reporter pass, that I could go and report on things, um, but that also, you know, this was a personal story for me. Um, half of my family, including um, my in-laws, are really, really strong Trump supporters. You know, they've been to Trump rallies, they have mega hats, they um, have a big yard sign. Uh, so I say that this book is really for me three things. It's personal because of my family and I know a lot of Americans can relate to that, just sorting through politics and religion, especially after 2016 within their families. Um, it's also pastoral, you know, my desire to see what Jesus was saying and what, what role churches have played in our political moment right now. Um, and then also it was journalistic. So it was really a wonderful opportunity for me. You, what, what I'm curious about is I read, read your book. One of the things that I think it might be your journalistic past. I, I, I think you did uh, a wonderful job not allowing your uh, preconceived notions about what Christianity should look like. Mm -hmm. it, like you didn't show your, your cards. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of thought, I don't know exactly where... Uh, Angela is coming from kind of theologically or or politically even sometimes uh, because mm -hmm. it's, you were able to speak with a, I would say, more or less objective voice, not objective in that was uncaring or, or detached. Yeah. But you also expressed, especially with the Orange County uh, chapter, a real um, affinity and love, a pastoral love for these people. Absolutely. Yeah. How, did, how did you blend your, your kind of theological background or or um, I mean how would you describe your theological positions now I'm, I'm guessing are you ELCA I am I'm ordained ELCA Lutheran pastor okay so you spoke with many of these conservative Christians with such uh, uh, fluency that I thought more well, it almost sounds like she's Missouri Lutheran Senate but then she wouldn't be an ordained pastor there. <laughs> it, was, it was there was a great ability uh, to talk with these people and to hear them on their own terms. So how would you describe your own kind of, where, where are you coming from, you know, kind of theologically on that? And how, how were you shaped theologically to, to enter into this conversation? Yeah, well, I think that one thing that I will say is that while I've always had 
a deep, deep Christian faith that's been, you know, really personal for me, even as a little kid, praying in my bed at night, going to Baptist Bible camp. Um, so yeah, well, my denomination tends to be considered a more liberal denomination. Many people within my denomination um, voted for Trump, were, are more conservative, um, and there's just a wide range. And I will also say that um, I don't think I would be a good pastor or a good follower of Jesus if I just didn't recognize that my theological beliefs, while I've, I always had that strong faith and commitment to, to the gospel, um, that they're evolving and changing and as I learn, as I spend more time in the Bible, as I spend more time with people. Um, I think that God is always continuing to reveal more to me. So um, I hope that came through in the book too, that, that there's an openness to consider um, where I may have been wrong, even theologically, <laughs> which maybe for a Lutheran is, <laughs> you know, we tend to think we're right all the time. <laughs> I, I used to work quite a bit with Lutherans yeah. in my consulting work. Now, you're in Minnesota, correct? Uh, I am now, so it's like a little Lutheran overload. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I, I remember driving through St. Paul and seeing, you know, like one street. I forgot about the main street that goes north and south, south through town, but it's like I counted, you know, yeah. a dozen Lutheran churches up and down. But outside of the city, I, I mean, I pastored in, in, uh, in the Great Plains for sure. a while. Sure. And, and I even though I would see my, my denominational tradition somewhat progressive on social issues, uh, it, it, it's different when you're living among um, farmers, uh, blue-collar folks, uh, people who are involved in uh, manufacturing, uh, as opposed to other places where I've lived where, you know, I've lived in college towns and I've lived in upscale uh, kinds of neighborhoods. And I find different right. different regions or different occupations sometimes have different affinities for different issues. And right. it seems like I, I read that in your book as you went and spoke to one group of people, they were Trump supporters for a particular thing in that area, something that made sense to them in that location. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can understand how even among ELCA, yeah, there's Trump supporters uh, because that's, it's a, it, there's so many different regions. It's not yeah. just Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. And I want, you know, that's really important to me. Um, like when I was first putting the book together, I think that in some ways my publisher saw this book um, as really pr primarily marketed toward a liberal audience. And I really pushed back against that, you know, and even when I do, I've been doing a lot of speaking events about my book recently. Um, and it's just really important to me that these are events that, and it's a book that can be read equally by conservatives and by liberals and by anybody, you know, no matter where you stand in the political spectrum, because I just really tire of um, the idea that we should always preach to the choir, you know, and so sure. progressive Christians have progressive Christian books. And, you know, I just think that's certainly not what, what Jesus would have wanted for us um, because we need to, you know, be heard by one another. So I really fought to make this a book um, that would be heard on both ends of the spectrum and to be honest with you, you know, that's not very popular right now. <laughs> so I'm glad it's oh, still selling. <laughs> yeah. I, I was so happy that about two or three weeks ago, I think it was, that uh, uh, Obama had a speech where he yeah. kind of criticized woke culture. Mm -hmm. That there was this litmus test to even allowing somebody's comments to be meaningful or part of our conversation. If they're not X, Y, and Z and all these things where we are, then will we just shut them out? Right. And and that's right. such a dangerous place to go. 
The, the, uh, I appreciate that. I, as, as, as you've been traveling, because I, I get your newsletter and your email updates, and you're, you are traveling a lot with this book, it seems. Um, other authors yeah. I've met books, they don't travel as much, you know, so I think there's a real openness to the conversation that you're beginning. What have you, what are some of the big aha moments that you've had in talking with different people in different places? And who's inviting you to speak? Speak Is it is it just the uh, kind of blue state Christians who go, oh, we want to understand what those red state folks are all about? Or is it kind of red state folks going, hey, you understood us well? Or is it just purple people? I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, it's a mix. I mean, I would say um, I've been invited a lot by Lutheran pastors um, who probably tend to be more on the democratic side, um, but primarily their focus is they want to have their congregations be a space where these kind of issues are discussed um, and they want people in their congregations to understand each other. So that's been really encouraging to me because one of the things that came through for me in the book is that when people are looking to um, break through some of the political division in our country and not by a false sense of unity, but by being able to speak really honestly to each other and see ourselves in one another. Um, I felt really compelled that the, the places that we can do that are the places closest to home, you know, in our own families. Um, and for those of us who are Christians in local churches, um, I just think that there's a huge opportunity for local churches to be one of those few spaces left where we can have ideological diversity and um, talk about what God thinks about our, our opinions politically. Um, so I've done a lot of that. One other big takeaway that I've had, I mean, are these regional differences? Um, I went to North Carolina and Missouri, and I definitely found that in the South, um, even though maybe Missouri, they say they're still Midwest, <laughs> um, you know, but what yeah. I found as I went further South is that people were much more open, you know, when it got to the Q and A portion of my events, people were much more open about, wow, this is what's happening in my family. Um, here's, you know, I voted for Trump. Here's how I feel, but this is what I'm seeing about Christian nationalism that I don't agree with. Um, so there's a lot of openness and just really people like so hungry to talk about these issues. Um, I've also done a lot of events in the upper Midwest and there is that upper Midwestern stoicism, you know, <laughs> where people have these deep feelings, but it's hard for them. It's harder for them to verbalize it. So I've noticed in those events, um, the Q and A tends to be more, you know, people still want to talk, but they don't share as much. Um, okay. and so I noticed that as well in Wisconsin. Um, but I also noticed that my events in communities that tend to be more conservative are where I have bigger turnouts, not necessarily because it's conservatives who are all coming, um, but because people have friends and family members who are on both sides of issues. Um, and when I'm right. in really, really liberal neighborhoods, you know, some people are like, well, I don't even care. I don't know anyone who voted for Trump. I don't care. I'm so disgusted by it. Um, and that's a hard attitude, you know, to overcome because, um, if you don't know anybody personally, then your ability to have empathy or be surprised by them is really limited. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You end up having this objectified or abstract notion of what that person is and you end up speaking to kind of like a, a straw man or, or, you know, kind totally. of a wooden. Yeah, totally. And that happens, you know, among really conservative communities as well, what they think about liberals. Um, but yeah, within yeah. my family, you know, they've got a, 
they, I, I never say I, I'm liberal. I think I'm maybe a little bit more moderate, but um, my family thinks, you know, in Missouri, they think I'm a huge liberal. They don't know what I'm doing to their son. <laughs> yeah, being, being a moderate these days is a very um, uncomfortable place to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've always tried to be among the progressives, the traditionalists, and among the conservatives. I've tried to be the liberal right. or progressive, you know. And, yeah, me too. <laughs> but I mean, you end up getting it on both sides and <laughs> uncomfortable, but yes. I think it's a necessary place to be. Yes, yeah. Uh, one, one of the issues that came up in the stories you told in the book, and I think it happened in a few different locations. Uh, I think one, and I wish I could remember the names right now, but one was a, I believe was a, a Tongan uh, yeah. youth minister. Yeah, in Orange County. Yeah, I mean, his story uh, was, you know, it, 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 it had this, um, you know, I have to survive in this place, mm-hmm. whereas a person of color, I'm continually misunderstood. Mm-hmm. But I also got the impression he loved what he was doing, mm-hmm. and that's what fueled him. Yeah. Um, and I kind of got the same sense, at least I felt the same way when you were talking about football in Texas mm-hmm. and some of the ways you know people of color come together for the sake of team. And, and, it, and So what, what did you learn with, with people of color and some of the challenges they have either as um, Trump supporters themselves or as – functioning or serving working within kind of these places that are and i don't like saying trump is a racist and those kinds of things Uh, i don't like making claims for people but certainly is um he is weak on anti-racism i'll put it (laughs) yeah yeah i um so I'll talk about the football first, um, because that oh, by, was... A- by the way, you, you have a quote in that football chapter that I love. Yeah. It is, sweat was incense, <laughs> sweat was incense to a priest comforting me and bringing me closer to the Holy Presence, something like that. I had jotted it yeah. down. I love yeah. that quote. I go, I know that. I got it. <laughs> it takes me back to my days in the hockey locker room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no smell like a hockey locker room. Um, uh, <laughs> so, no, uh... Yeah, so I think that these voices were really important for me to lift up throughout the book, um, especially for my readers who might be white progressive Christians or just white progressives trying to understand evangelicals, um, because I think that voices that we really need to listen to at this moment politically um, are really evangelicals of color, um, because they are people who have seen the Christian faith as one that has to work from the margins at, as one that um, is always pushing us towards justice and always pushing us towards freedom and liberation. Um, you know, we saw that in the civil rights movement and even during the civil war in Christian abolitionism. Um, so that I really wanted to lift up the voices of evangelicals of color in the book. Um, so this football coach who I talked to, he came to faith, you know, he kind of grew up his, um, in inland Florida, a community that had a lot of poverty in it. Um, his father was kind of in and out of jail, not a big presence in his life. His mom kind of tried to get him to go to the AME church, but he didn't, he wasn't finding it real moving for him. Um, and then he starts playing football for Naples high school, which Naples, Florida, you know, huge bastion of affluency. Um, but a lot of the younger families and kids who are going to high school in Naples, you know, don't come from affluent backgrounds. Um, 
so he's starting to play football. It turns out he's a super talented quarterback. Um, and then one of the players from the football team collapses on the field and ends up dying. And this young man who I spoke with, um, he ends up going to the funeral at this white Southern Baptist church. And in the, as part of the funeral, the pastor does an altar call. And so for me as a Lutheran, so I was like, oh, don't do that. You know, that's terrible. <laughs> don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> but for, for this guy who, who I talked with, that's, that was pivotal for him and his faith, you know, there's a huge moment for him where he felt like Jesus became really real to him in that moment. So that sort of changed his life and he became really um, focused on going a different path than his dad had. And he ends up getting a college scholarship. He ends up playing football in college. Um, he had an injury, but he, you know, didn't go to the NFL, but he pushed through, became a assistant principal and later went back to coach football at Naples high school. And so I talked with him after the presidential election and what he said, you know, as a person who's seen a lot of positives from conservative Christianity and even from, you know, the Republican party, um, he was really clear about the fact that parents at the school, students at the school, felt a lot more comfortable saying racist things to him after Trump was elected mm -hmm. that he experienced language things said to him that he hadn't before. Um, and that was really real, you know, that happened to him. And so I think when people want to entirely discount any type of racism, involved in Trump's election, you just really have to listen to stories like that and think, okay, if that's not the intention, it's still something that's happening. Right. Um, it's really real for people. So I thought that that story was really important, especially because I also featured in that story, the head football coach who had been this man's coach and then, you know, became a fellow colleague of his as a coach. Um, and the head football coach really didn't see that, you know, he thought, well, in our football team, we're coming together. There is, we just see each other as brothers on the football team. We don't see the racism. And so I think that, you know, he had to learn from the story of the assistant coach and understand how different it was. Um, and then I want to talk about Wes real quick too, because you brought him yeah, up. Right. And his voice was so important. Um, so Wes, at the time when I was interviewing him, he was. Can, you, can you pronounce his last name, by the way? Wes. I mean, I think it's Tamifuna. Thank you. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, I'll take your word for it, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> he, uh, so he's half Tongan, half Hispanic, but grew up in Southern California um, and ends up being the pastor to young adults at Mariners Church, which is the seventh largest church in the country and built on some of the most expensive real estate in the entire country at Newport Coast, California. Beautiful, wow. beautiful campus. Um, but so his voice, Wes's voice, to me represented the fact that a lot of these large Christian mega churches across America have been purposeful about hiring people of color to serve in sort of their outreach ministries. Um, so in working against poverty, doing some mission work. So there's a lot of people of color who have been employed in these very conservative, generally white leadership Christian churches. Um, and even though maybe politically um, they were different, you know, from the lead pastor of the churches that they worked for, 
everybody kind of coexisted and they came together over shared goals against poverty or working even to do things like help refugees. Um, and then in Trump's election, what Wes experienced at Mariners, I think is mirrored by what happened at a lot of large churches. And I saw this even in my congregation, um, that this sort of maybe shallow peaceful mm. coexistence was really shattered. And people of color who worked at these large congregations West said, you know, they were crying. They were personally upset after Trump's election because of some of these racist incidents that happened after and all of a sudden people are using the N word again. And, um, and their white colleagues at the churches just didn't get it. Why are you upset? You know, he's going to do great things for our country. He's going to get rid of Roe v. Wade. He's going to change the Supreme court. He's going to help us economically. And from West's perspective, there wasn't a lot of space for listening to the colleagues of color as to how these political events affected them personally and why why how it affected them was as important as some of these larger conservative Christian goals that Trump has promised to support. Um, Now, the sad thing about that is that, and so Wes, you know, he was preaching at this huge church, but then he'd get mistaken for being on the grounds crew or people would ask them to get him a copy. They thought he worked in the cafe and this stuff happened to him all the time. he was really committed to his work there, but since the publication of the book, um, he's left Mariners. So I'm, you know, I'm saddened for that community that it no longer has his, his voice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, that's a significant loss that people at this point probably culturally don't, won't recognize until this very conservative moment passes. Yeah. And I mean, Wes said that, um, when he preached in front of the church um, that people told him after the service, they're like, Oh, we're not used to seeing Brown people speak and preach as a leader. You know, you're kind of supposed to be the people that were helping. So they, <laughs> they would see people in like mission videos or, but, um, and this is in orange County, which is a pretty diverse, you know, community as far as Asian and Hispanic population but you just see these old sort of ideas and stereotypes that people have that still exist even in, you know, suburban Orange County. Wow. That's uh, th- those, those stories that that's kind of, it's sad to hear that he's not there any longer. Yeah. I hope he's, I hope he's in a good spot. Uh, if he wants to move yeah. to Idaho, he sounds like somebody we'd love to have on our staff out here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, and he, one of his former colleagues, who is also a pastor of color at Mariners, started a new congregation that Wes was really excited about in Orange County. So I'm not sure if he's joined that congregation, but um, I'm hopeful that, you know, the Spirit's continuing to do great work in Orange County as well. One of the reasons I think his story also kind of stuck with me is also in our region here in the Boise area, we do have a, I wouldn't say sizable, but there are a number of uh, folks of Tongan descent. Oh, cool. Actually, there's a lot of Tongans in Utah since uh, of uh, LDS missionary efforts. Right. And then a lot of them have come over here to play football at BYU or Boise State. And then they yeah. stay in the communities here. And, they're, they're, um, and then their families are here. And so it's been a multi-generational thing at this point. Um, nice. The, the, one, of the, one of the things um, that I'm, there, there's so many things in this book, but I want to honor our time. I mean, you have, you have, uh, conversations with Paula White, which are talk about her and uh, like that. That's a whole 
amazing con- you know conversation there and your perspective mm-hmm. on having the you know seeing what she's about and what she's doing there is i think vastly different than some of the other media that comes out about Paula White. And then one of the other stories in there that was, was fascinating and also a little bit disturbing was, I think it, I don't want to get it incorrect. Was it Thomas More College? Yeah. In New Hampshire. Which is the only, I think one, one comment you said about that one is it, it, I can't remember the quote, but it was made you think something about Gilead or something like that. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, now, and the reason I think that one stood out is that that was kind of maybe a, a more extreme scenario than, vast, than the vast um, number of conversations and experiences you had. So it's it's almost like you know for for you know Democrats to say to to know it's not all about you know Gilead isn't coming. There's a lot of other right. people out there who right. have different motivations that yeah. we need to understand those people, not just fear this, this other. Yeah. Yeah. They're both true. You know, you have to, I mean, there's a huge chunk of the book that talks about Christian nationalism. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, when I talk about the book, you know, I do say that there's a warning within the book that I think people have to be aware of, which is Christian nationalism. But for me, that's not a partisan argument. Um, For me, you know, Christian nationalism is an idolatry that places um, love of country and patriotism over uh, um, love of Jesus and the story of Jesus. Um, So the reaction, you know, of some people on the left to become really heavily involved in democratic causes, um, I just caution people that the reminder is that, you know, our salvation is never found in a political party. Um, And so, you know, even when I was excited, when Obama was elected, um, I think when Trump was elected, it was a reminder to me that Jesus called us to be as Christians, a resistance movement to the government, just as Jesus was, um, and a resistance movement to this gross amassing of political power. So that was a huge lesson to me out of the book. One of the wonderful foundations for uh, being a missional people is to uh, model an alternative uh, kingdom. Yes. You know, and to, you know, in my tradition, we, we always talk about the third way. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, lift lift that up, mm-hmm. but 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 yeah, idolatry is not partisan necessarily. Right. right. Way. <laughs> yep, it's pretty rampant all over the place. <laughs> so what is, we, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to wrap up our time together. I'm going to ask a few more questions. I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, one one uh, question is though, and I'm going to ask you to limit your answer to about two minutes. Have you been listening to the news lately about the impeachment hearings? And do you have any uh, f- uh, thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's a, extremely demoralizing because um, there's so much news about impeachment and you get inundated with news because of the 24-hour news cycle. Um, right. But uh, the news is very hard to sort of sort through without seeing it through a prism of, okay, this is a more progressive take on it. This is a more conservative take on it. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of smoke. Um, oh. I haven't seen the fire yet. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, Trump's engagement with, with Ukraine was corrupt. Um, but 
there don't seem to be any consequences yet. And there haven't been a lot of consequences for Donald Trump his whole life. So that's, <laughs> that's an amazing thing. That's <laughs> people called Ronald Reagan, the Teflon president. Yeah. Uh, not anymore. <laughs> no, no. So here, what, what, what we do with our guests, we, we try to get a little personal here at the end and we ask a few questions just to get to know you a little bit more. They have nothing to do with, with your book, maybe nothing to do with anything. Um, but we ask about five questions just to find out kind of what makes you tick. Um, so, and it has to do with just things you like to do. So the first question we ask is, what are you drinking? What's, what's, a, what's a drink of choice lately? You go, that's, that's how I know that I'm home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's super boring. But my first response is water because it's so darn dry in the Midwest right now. Um, and I have a water bottle that says sore today, strong tomorrow. There you so go. That's, that's my encouragement. I, I read an article over the summer about reading a gallon, of, uh, drinking a gallon of water a day. Yeah. And so I've started doing that as, a, as my practice. So I'm with you on the water. That makes all, all the sense in the world. <laughs> uh, what are you watching or binging on? Anything? Um, I'm always trying to watch something. Um, I just unlocked like the latest season of Intervention, actually, on A&E, which oh, is yeah. a long five-part series on the opioid crisis, focusing in wow. on a certain neighborhood in Philadelphia. Um, so my brother is in recovery for alcoholism, and um, my grandfather also went through AA. Um, so that's a huge passion of mine, yeah. is you know helping people to understand addiction and to care for people who have to deal with addiction. That's awesome. <laughs> what are you what are you listening to uh Either podcasts or music however you want to think of that yeah so my favorite podcast and the first podcast that i became a religious listener to is called dopey um and it's put on <laughs> <laughs> it's put oh. on by two recovering addicts and so it again talks a lot about um wow. addiction okay. But, you know, does so in a really honest and sometimes irreverent way. Um, so I love them. And then I've also been listening to a parenting podcast called um, The Longest Shortest Time. And that's been great for me, too. That, that title sounds incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, so good stuff. Wow. So um, reading, what, what are you filling, your, filling your, your, your mind with in reading? What do you like to read? I have a big stack of, because I have so many friends who are authors, so I've been reading, um, I just read Holy Disunity um, by Leighton E. Williams. She's a Presbyterian pastor, um, and her book is almost like the theological, biblical story side of my book, um, and so she really talks about how this moment in a divided America, we have to lean into sometimes the things that separate us, um, but we have to walk in it together. So there's a call against a false unity, but also um, a real need to be together in our differences. Um, so I appreciate that. And then I also read Goodbye Vitamin recently. Huh. Um, and it's about a daughter caring for her father who has Alzheimer's um, and I've worked a lot with people who have dementia and my grandmother had uh, dementia as well. So again, sort of an irreverent, funny take. Um, that's also really, really sparsely written and really fun read. 
Well, I think a, a, a humorous take on something so difficult would kind of also be life-giving. Yeah. In a way, because yeah. um, my, my mother uh, passed away with dementia, and I can understand how uh, throwing some light into it, some lightness would be uh, very helpful. Yeah, goodbye vitamin. Check it out. It was really oh, good. <laughs> all right. And then um, what, what, city, what town are you in? Where do you live? I'm in Minneapolis. Oh, you're right in the main. Reason. You're in the heart of it. Okay. <laughs> so, so here's here's the last question we ask. If if um, we were to come to your place, where would you take us to have the best, authentic local food? Uh, so I live like three houses down from a restaurant called Red Cow. Um, and, you know, they have a bunch of different kinds of beer because Minneapolis has become a little more into local breweries. Um, and then they've got, you know, really great burgers. Um, but they also started serving like the Impossible Burger and a plant-based menu. So it's kind of that great blend of Minneapolis, you know, beer, hearty food, but also trying to be like somewhat, you know, socially responsible. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. <laughs> That's awesome. There, uh, I, I had been invited to or called to do a pastorate in uh, northern Minnesota at one point. Okay. And that town, it's the its reason for existence was uh, walleye. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I wanted to go there just to eat walleye. Yeah. And, and to catch them. But, uh, <laughs> That's great. No, it's... I, I, I love the Twin Cities. It was It's one of my favorite places to visit. Um, it's... Um, is it the Dakota Room? Is that a jazz club? Probably. Yeah, I don't travel. I got these two little boys at home, so I'm usually yeah. home for sundown. But well, yeah, that's the way it is when I'm at home. Usually, if I go someplace interesting, <laughs> it's when I'm away on travel. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but it's a great place. Well, hey, I thank you for spending some time with me, uh, and um, I, I I know you're planning to go to the gym. You need to get that in. I know I've got to get it in every day. And I don't want to impinge on your schedule there. But I really appreciate your spending time and uh, um, look forward to hearing more about your adventures. And uh, we'll, we'll post information about your newsletter and uh, your, your website so people can stay up to date on the things that you're, you're active with. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm just beginning to start thinking about my second book. And I think it's going to be about hope. So look forward to that. <laughs> uh, I think that sounds like a very uh, necessary antidote for our time. Absolutely. Thank Excellent. you so much. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. So that was the conversation with Angela. And as I said, kind of following up, teaming these two together, a uh, conversation that we had with our congregation, actually, during the, uh, the shutdown, the COVID shutdown. Uh, here in Idaho, we're in a different place than most other people are across the country in the COVID shutdown has opened up a bit and uh, mixed feelings about the politics and uh, and how all that that works and how that goes together but one of the realities of, of Idaho living in the Boise area is that we are a metropolitan area our county I guess probably um, close to a million people not quite there but it's the largest metropolitan area furthest away from every other metropolitan area in the country which is kind of an odd statistic, uh, I think, if you don't include uh, Hawaii, perhaps. But what that means is we're not the major crossroads for anyone, but we have a rather self-sufficient uh, economy, culture, community, education, 
uh, finance, by banking, all those different things uh, to take care of the people who are here. Uh, and our airport, good airport, but it's not a major uh, thoroughfare, Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, around here, uh, you know, picking up a lot of uh, interaction with international flights and, and whatnot. So we're kind of isolated, and I think that's been to our advantage when it comes to the coronavirus. Uh, we do have our spikes like everybody else. But in the early stages of the coronavirus, when we shut everything down, and our church went on to Zoom like everybody else, using Facebook Live and other tools, one of the uh, things we did, and got this uh, innovation, I guess, from uh, a friend who's pastoring uh, up, in, up in Washington, to take the Sunday school time that was traditionally an hour before or after someone's worship service and use that for Zoom conversations, Facebook Live conversations with other thought leaders and then involve the congregation to participate and have a conversation with this person. So we went ahead and did that and uh, we ended up having a conversation. We've had a number of, number of conversations a couple of episodes ago. One of those was a conversation with Mark Karras and then uh, we had this conversation with Doug Paget. Uh, the conversation begins with Doug and I kind of uh, trading a few comments back and forth and realizing that even though we had not met before, we certainly had been around each other's orbit for almost 20 years, uh, being friends with friends and connected with organizations and movements that we were participating in together, but never met each other. Uh, so, so with Doug, there's a little bit of a personal connection that we're making, uh, but we also get into the information about what he's doing. So Doug had been the pastor at a place called Solomon's Porch, who was part of the emerging church movement back in the early 2000s, and was in many ways uh, significant to help that conversation move forward. Along the way, though, uh, he has made some changes and shifted his focus, and now he's working to lead an organization called Vote Common Good. Now, Vote Common Good has uh, the main political um, idea that it, it wants to um, promote is we need to get rid of the president that we have. Maybe I'm paraphrasing too much, but we need to get rid of the president we have so that we can have a more moral, thoughtful, intelligent conversation around things that are for common good. And not only that, it's not just a critique against the existing president, it's also making a commitment that what we do should be focused or should be motivated by love, real love, love that becomes active in, in the public sphere. Uh, seeing lots of t-shirts, bumper stickers perhaps, and other kinds of memes that says justice is what love looks like in public. And I think that's probably a good way to put it. But part of the commitment to participating or wanting to, to move forward with vote co for common good is this idea that love is the motivating factor, not winning, not overcoming one's uh, political enemy. And so um, with that, we jump into a conversation with Doug and then have a little bit of conversation with some other folks from the congregation. So hope you enjoy the conversation with Doug Paget. Thank you. Yeah, I had, uh, I, 
I wish I, I I wish I knew more about Zoom because I keep on getting those alarms that pop in and out with little doorbells. But uh, eventually, I figure out a way to weed those out. So, well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I looked at your event schedule, especially for Vote Common Good, and you are very busy. Uh, there's a lot of uh, you've got a lot of uh, conversations going on in a variety of different locations. Where not probably all the same location, your basement or your home or wherever you're working from. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'm on this side of the basement. Sometimes I face that way. Tonight for our electionary, I'll face that way where there's a whole drop, backdrop set up over there. But tonight or today, it's I'm in this location. Well, that's good. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. It, 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 in the now, just just for some background, what what is a couple of questions? Though, what is vote common good, and how did you get there from having been a pastor? What's what was that transition, and why this? Yeah, I, uh, we started Vote Common Good officially in January of 2018. Uh, sorry, June of 2018. And it was a direct response to a lot of us as religious leaders uh, and people who wanted to be in the public space of faith and civic engagement, believing that Donald Trump was a unique threat to the well-being of this planet and to the health and emotional and physical health of people on this planet or in this country. Never did we imagine that others would see as clearly as we did what a hazard he is to the the health and the well-being of people in this country it's just been proven out in the last you know 168 hours that the man truly if you listen to him and do what he says you really could be putting yourself at harm and so we started vote common good as a, a way to ask religious people to stop the re-election of donald trump and uh, we formed uh, this as a, a nonprofit group of a certain kind. It's it's what's referred to as a 501c4, uh, not to bore people with you know tax code, but in the tax code, there's uh, different kinds of nonprofits. 501c is the nonprofit charitable arm. Then there's a C3 and a C4 option. C3 are churches or C3s, lots of other YMCAs, a C3, other, other groups like that. Yeah, thanks for the little uh, ad there. I yeah, team team Idaho, baby, team Idaho. Um, they are, uh, and and C threes have certain limitations put on them um, about what they can do politically. They cannot speak for or against the election of a particular candidate. And that's an issue I really want you to go ahead and take some time to speak on because you can do that as a C four, but it's something that I, as a pastor, can't do in my congregation as a C three. If I'm understanding that distinction. Yeah, well, it's curious whether you as a pastor can or you as an organization spend money on doing such and such. I, I, I am on the side that you can do a whole lot more than most pastors do. Most pastors don't talk about politics on the unless you're on the religious right, and then you do it every day, all the time. Like, like you, you think you think Pastor Jeffries uh, from you know from T Dallas is not talking about election? Of course he is. You think when the evangelicals have a meeting in their building called Tr uh, Evangelicals for Trump that Donald Trump is at, they're not doing? Of course they are. Progressive and left-minded and not conservative types anywhere in that in that sphere tend not to do it, not because of the legal requirement, but because we don't want tend to not want to offend the one or two people in our congregation that seemingly uh, will listen to us on politics, but would never listen to us on the other issues that we talk to about how to live your life. I mean, this is my great this is my great comment to church leaders. They're like, well, I don't want to tell people in my church who to vote for. I'm like, do they listen to you? You people in your church, because I've been a pastor for a long time. No one's like, hey, you know what I should worry about when I go to vote is what does Doug think about this? Like the influence I have on their life is one of myriad influences in their lives. And 
the 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 over uh, extended uh, uh, sense of importance that pastors have about their influence in their That's congregation good. cracks me up, right? I'm like these people, uh, you know, who, whom I love and try to influence, and they influence me. They're not they're not just walking along as as some sort of you know. Uh, 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 followers of every word I say. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot more you yeah. can do. So there's a lot more. Good to know. That's good. But a 501c4 is the kind of nonprofit that can talk specifically about election outcomes. That's not all you do. We're not a pack. We don't spend money on candidates. We're not a political operating arm. We're, we exist for the common good. So vote common good works great for us in that in that kind of language. Um, but we, we we are able to say that this particular candidate puts the common good at harm. And and that's what we're doing. And look, we're, we're, we're not boosters for the Democratic Party. I think everyone should vote for the Democratic candidate in this next election. I ask them to, if for no other reason than to stop the reelection of Donald Trump. But we are specifically wanting to make sure that Donald Trump does not continue to inflict this country and this planet with his um, lack of ability to to be a to be uh, uh, an effective president. And 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 as a pastor, like I, it can sound really personal and sound like I just hate the guy. And people have told me that they think that's what I'm doing. They're like, hey, you got you to gotta ratchet it back a little bit. I think you're, you're falling into the category of the haters. And, and in all honesty, I don't hate Donald Trump. I, I believe that Donald Trump is, as we all are, the beloved child of God, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But look, right, not every light of the world should be the president of the United States. And he's one of them. And he should let his dim little light go shine doing something else and stop bothering the good people of this country by continuing to fail day after day as president. This isn't personal about him. It's personal about the damage that he's causing because of his inability to perform this job duty. And this is the place where I wish there was not a code in our in our uh, charitable contribution category of the federal government that says you can't speak about issues that affect the common good. You have to be muted around the election of a candidate um, if if you're going to pursue the common good. It's it's put in place as a muzzle. This is the one place where, with my conservative friends, I agree. It's referred to actually as the Johnson Amendment. And it, right. it has that name because it was Lyndon Johnson who became the president as a congressman who put this into place because then they wanted to prevent churches from talking against, uh, for talking for seg uh, the, the stopping of segregation for civil rights. So Johnson was on the other side of that issue before. He put this into place to keep pastors from agitating to bring an end to civil rights. And why pastors on the liberal side of the persuasion or progressives continue to push forward on the Johnson Amendment makes no sense to me. It's not in our Constitution. It's it's IRS tax code. It's right. wrongheaded. It should go away. We should all be pushing against it. The one place where I could join together with my conservative pastor friends and say, let's bring an end to the Johnson Amendment and tell pastors that they don't have to um, not mention. Because what pastors do is they talk sideways about it all the right. time. Right. And so it's not honest and it's it's not helpful. And then um, it's it's this way of sort of under the guise of being nonpolitical that you just become sideways about it. So all that to say, vote common good doesn't have to worry about any of that. We travel the country. We try to tell stories of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and won't be doing so in 2020. And we want to engage people in that in that conversation and help give them a, an off ramp from voting for Trump. And we've been interviewing many, many uh, voters who are in that category and their stories are fascinating. They're very similar to one another. Um, but 
but that's what we do. And so we travel the country now traveling it digitally and, uh, you know, with a Monday cooking show and a Tuesday electionary and uh, a Wednesday uh, or Friday a pray for the president campaign. We're going to start a, a Thursday house concert and all kinds of stuff. And I, I, I was just reviewing the blog uh, on the website, Vote Common Good, and uh, was looking at the prayer. Uh, you had a prayer in there that was um, also reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount yeah. and just kind of went through these different elements of the Sermon on the Mount, really focused at the president, but also not focused at clobbering the president. Uh, it was it was this attempt to be both critical and gracious at the same time. Huh. And and uh, I thought that's, that's hard to do, uh, first of all. But I thought it was also really laudable that it's I, I think there's a perhaps maybe you can uh, fill this in or say more about it not only are you trying to provide information but it seems like you're also trying to model you know how do we how do we critique without becoming i guess overly partisan or or anger uh, reactive you know that kind of way yeah you know we're, we're trying to do uh, we're, we're trying to live up to the standard that we all uh, want from someone else, right? Is to speak the truth as you see it. You know, I, I saw somebody wearing a shirt when I was uh, on a social distancing walk, but meaning by myself. Right. And she was coming the other way. She looked like she was a trainer. She had a group of people. She might have been training on a walk and so on. And she had the shirt that said, uh, be yourself. Others will adjust. I kind of like that. Um, so, so we're trying to model this idea where you truth tell from your from your vantage point with the up, uh, and it's not too much to ask people to have a certain level of humility in that. Like you know, you you could be wrong, um, but also to not become so um, bound up with, well, what could I possibly say about this? Um, and, and look again, uh, there have been a lot of presidents, people that ran for office that I haven't supported. I've never done anything like this. I've never given up my previous way of life, gotten on a bus, tried to raise millions of dollars to travel around the country and ask religious people to serve the common good by stopping the election of someone. In fact, hearing myself say that, it's like you've become a crazy person, right? Like you're a middle-aged man in your basement talking on the internet uh, and you've, you've fully jumped the, you know, I should move to, to Idaho if I want to fill out the, you know, the, uh, the stereotype here. Um, You'd be welcome out here, by the way. So <laughs> right, That's right. I call this my bunker of resistance, not my underground yeah. bunker of resistance. Um, so, so this is, this is outrageous, right? What, what are we doing? But it's, it, to, to the earlier part of the conversation, this is what some of us were trying to do in the emerging church world, was we were trying to say that your faith ought to compel you to the benefit and blessing of others. That's the language we used around Solomon's Porch, the church that I pastored and started for and was part of for 20 years, that you know we want to be a benefit and blessing to the world. Well, just because someone tells you that politics isn't the place where you should be a benefit and blessing doesn't mean it's not the place you should be the benefit and blessing. And in this particular case, because we use a representative form of democracy based on counting votes to establish who is going to be in what positions, we are all obligated into a world in which we can choose to influence that world or not. And I want people of Christian faith to be influencing that that world, uh, not for their own self-interest. And you know, we like uh, one of our next uh, prayers that will come out 
I think it's going to be based on First Corinthians or on uh, on Philippians too. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. Like there, there's a way of organizing yourself in which what you're approaching going forward is the care for the collective. I think it's what Jesus would call the kingdom of God. Uh, and uh, I actually see Jesus as a very political character. I did a, an Easter sermon for for a church um, where I talked about the crucifixion and resurrection as a political act and a political response, that when the gospel wants to say that Jesus doesn't stay dead, what he's saying is that the government's power under Pontius Pilate to kill Jesus and under the orders of Herod uh, are not going to be followed. It's an act of civil disobedience. To, to see the resurrection from the dead. I know some people don't want to see anything in Jesus that way. They don't want to see the Sermon on the Mount. They don't want to see the, the teaching. They don't want to see the, the de demonstrative uh, uh, way of the miracles um, in that way. But I think that's exactly what they are. I think they're pushbacks to a political system that was different than our political system. And I don't think we need to tell stories of martyrdom. I think we need to tell stories of engagement. And so we can leave the sacrificial system behind, as Jesus called us to, and we can step forward into something more more generative. And our particular broken form of democracy is what's available to us. And I think the idea that people want to sit it out is hard. And that's hard for me. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, because I'm, while I'm not an Anabaptist, just because I'm not much of a joiner, um, the Anabaptist tradition, if I somehow I could mix it, you know, Anabaptist with Eastern Orthodox in sort of a 21st century way, that's the kind of faith I'd like to live. Um, nice, man. I like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't that be great if that was if that was around? Um, that, that reminds me of uh, Brian McLaren's book, uh, Generous Orthodoxy, where he linked Anabaptists with Anglicans. And I thought, no, I like that one, too. <laughs> yes, that was, that, that, that was insightful. Yeah. <laughs> call that he had. So I don't know, you know, because the Anabaptists have said, you know, like, consider the other kingdom. And um, uh, as, as I've personally grown, I've realized, hey, you know, I have a lot of identities in my own life. I have the identity in my family. That, you know, we're popping in on Zoom calls with two sides of our family and then with our kids. And so sometimes I'm the brother, sometimes I'm the son, sometimes I'm the dad, sometimes I'm the husband, sometimes I'm the uncle, sometimes I'm the cousin. Like I have all these different identities and they're not all the same and they don't all play out the same in, in every every context. And our faith is is really no different. I think that we find ourselves in different identities at different moments and are called to different to different acts of responsibility. And I would say in this moment, 2016, 2020, that is sharpened in clarity for me about what I need to be doing. And as an Enneagram 8, it doesn't bother me to say to someone else, you should consider this for yourself as well. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, if I thought it would do any good to tell you what to do, I might tell you what to do. I just don't think that's good for you or for me, and I don't think it works. But consider making the stopping of this presidential uh, administration a goal, I think is a good thing. And, and I think yeah. I think more people should be doing it. I didn't, I mean, I, I was lightly stumping around for Barack Obama in 2008, but nothing aggressive. Uh, I thought, you know, there's other people that have that in their purview. Um, and uh, and even in 2016, I, uh, if, if I'd known Donald Trump could have won, I probably would have been doing this back then, but I achieved myself that there was no chance. Yeah, I think we were all kind of on that page, like, oh, this isn't going to happen. But I, I think one of the things I hear you saying, and I think it fits with some of the, this, the challenges historically we've had as Anabaptists, is uh, somewhere deep in our DNA. Now, I didn't grow up Anabaptist. I came to it uh, through the uh, conservative, then American Baptist Church, and then landed among the Anabaptists and went, oh, this is my family. 
but I grew up Presbyterian actually. And so I, I had this kind of mutt uh, behind me, but coming to the Anabaptists, there is this tendency that when you find something in society or culture that you uh, find um, that you can't participate in rather than engage it and change it, you become sectarian, you separate, you uh, become you know, an Amish farmer in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and you, you just have your own little, maybe not little, but you have your own commune. You know, it's almost uh, this uh, segregation away from the world rather than engagement in. And I think one of the most vital, thing for me, vital things for me was uh, engaging Anabaptism at a missional level. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to push that mission back into our communities where we live, the people we work with, and it picks up with the identities you described. Uh, I am not only an Anabaptist Christian. I mean, that might be a core piece, and some identities are, you know, more significant or or kind of more bedrock than others. But I I'm a high school track coach. I'm a neighbor. I have all those different family relationships that you uh, alluded to. I share those as well. Uh, father, husband, brother, yeah. uh, son. And, and in those identities, it begs me to be engaged in those things rather than to separate from. Yeah, well, totally. And look, I, I don't know enough about Anabaptists. You could, you could teach me on this one, but I believe that every religious movement and the denominations to me are tend to be best understood as ethnic religious movements from a certain time frame right. that the time when Anabaptists sort of found their, their, their place, what was happening in the world was the, the creation of nation states and that countries were taking on a particular tonality. And even in the United States, there were certain regions that were for certain groups of people with, you know, uh, right. certain leaders, and we even named some of our states, like Pennsylvania, after this. Yeah. So what you had was the way you engaged in the nation-state democracy was to create a community of people who thought and, and believed in a particular way, then you as a group would then relate to the other groups in that in that way and that was the zeitgeist that was the 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 melu i think that was going on and anabaptists just haven't transitioned from that to being in a a more uh, uh stew-like mix of well not everybody on our block is like us or in our state or like we're we're mixed in this thing together which frankly is a very new human experiment that we've been doing for i don't know 250 to 500 years right in the world and in this country. It's not entirely sure that all of our systems, you know, work well with it or that it's even the best way for it to go. I don't know. We, we're, we're you know, we're all figuring it out. So it just feels like any of our traditions, no, no matter, and I'm not saying some are better than others, you know, but they're all created in a space and time with a set of imaginations that tell us how we ought to organize most effectively. And the, yeah. Well, I've spent a lot of my life trying to ask people to sort of let that go so you can grab on to something new. Um, I'm not entirely sure it makes any difference because as soon as you let go of that and grab onto something new in about 20 years, as you and I know, having both started churches, that could be two decades long. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm living the imagination of some people from my 20-year-old self and exactly. they won't let me yeah. free from what I wanted 20 years ago. Yeah. 
And so it doesn't take long for the human uh, mind to sort of latch on to a, a right way of, of being. So we have to then instead develop the skills to adapt no matter what system we're in. And the lack of adaptation, uh, I think, is, uh, is really the, the problem in churches and yeah. religious communities. And so if someone's a convert, ever a convert, convert religiously, a convert in their diet, a convert, you know, from never running track. And if you're a high school track coach, you're probably meeting kids every spring that you're like, give track a try this year. And they're like, I don't like to run. Right. And, you know, and then they show up the next year and they go, got a convert. Yeah. Got a convert. And you're like, it's, it takes a lot of forces to move someone right. to a new way of living and being. And frankly, as we know, as pastors or as social uh, organizers, there's not a lot of incentive to create a, a stage in which people outgrow you. Like, it's funny, as a pastor, I would find myself feeling like, I really want you to grow and to develop as a human being, as a person, and all of our systems, like Jesus said of the Sabbath, are made to benefit humanity. Humanity doesn't exist to benefit our system, and all of this needs to be for your growth. But please don't grow so much that you don't need us anymore, or don't grow so much that it takes right. you away from us. Like there's kind of this desire for you to grow, but not ever to grow enough where you don't fit here. So we have this tug and pull that we're just not very, very good at. And it's hard enough to do that with one person, like a child or a spouse or a lover. It's even harder to do that with like, I don't know, a family of somebody else's family and you know, somebody over 20 years. And uh, So I, I'm not even sure that churches make sense anymore. I mean, this has been a, a very deep question I've had for my entire life uh, because I didn't, wasn't raised in religion. So I've never had a hard wire into churches are the savior of the world. I'm like, no, churches are the mean places where mean people go to tell you that they're better than you. That's, that's pretty much my starting point in life on church. I've grown a lot since then, but um, so I'm not sure that churches even make sense or roles like you and I have had uh, uh, yeah. are, are, are serving humanity at all. I, I don't know. I, I think this uh, one of the, the fellows that you probably you and I probably have overlapped with is uh, Alan Roxborough. Yeah. And uh, Al would frequently and continues to, to speak about dis, uh, continuous change yeah. and adaptation. And I have a hunch that this moment that the churches are going through in well around the world, but primarily North America, where we really love to hold on to a model and say, we got the technique, we got it figured out. Um, this moment, this pandemic is a, a wonderful opportunity to go, okay, what does church really look like? Yep. And it's, I think yeah, it, it's not going to change everything, but also normal is gone. I don't think normal we're going to get back to. So it's forcing us to ask some questions about adaptation. What is the church? What does it look like? What good is it? And uh, how does it engage? Yeah. So I think it's a, it, I think it's a great, it's a, it's a very, it's a terrible uh, opportunity. I mean, it, um, it, it, yeah, I think the yeah. church can have some creative influence on the outcome. I, I was in, I was in a meeting one time and a guy, a guy shared something very similar to this. He said, Hey, I worked for a company that made drill bits and it was one of the premier drill bit making companies in the, in the world and they would sell to lots of brands, put their brands on it. And a new president came in and he said, um, they got all of us kind of vice presidents and middle managers together and was talking about the changes that they thought needed to happen in the company. And the, and the new president said, what is it that we make here? And people would say, we make drill bits. And then uh, he said, well, th you know, say more. Well, uh, we make top quality drill bits and then we make the best drill bits in the world. And we make, and he said, 
Might I suggest that what we make here are holes. What drill bits exist for is to put a hole in something. Now we might make holes with water in the future. We might make holes with lasers. We might make holes with whole new kinds of drill bits, but we're not making drill bits. We're making a drill bit to be used to make a hole. Right. I thought it was a great, he was talking about churches basically exactly. saying, yeah. do you think you exist to have a church? Do you think the point of church is church? Because if it's the point and not the, the tool used for a point, you're doing something else. And I, I just think that was difficult for the people in that drill bit company. Okay. I think it's difficult for all of us in any place that we find ourselves because to recognize that the very actions that we do are in service of something else and thereby we could become uh, less useful than, than ever before. Um, but we hold, on, we hold on to our thing to keep doing the thing that we do. So yeah. we make drill bits. All we're going to do is make drill bits, even if in the future there are better ways to make holes. But no, we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't use water pressure. No, we don't use lasers. We make drill bits. Make drill bits. Yeah, and uh, that's probably the uh, motto of all those organizations that no longer exist. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you can see in like the the people work that, that people like you and I do. The the reason you, I mean, the thing you end up thinking about is all the people who really benefit from the drill bit, right? right. To, you know, to, to just break this, this metaphor down too far. And at some point you say to yourself, and maybe you've experienced it recently, where you're like, if we make this decision we're about to make, which we did at Solomon's Porch about a year and a half ago, that's gonna mean that some things that are super important to some people and have become an incredibly um, uh, crucial part of their life right. is not gonna be available for them. And my friend Dwight, Dwight Friesen, who you might know, oh, I'd yeah, imagine right. you, you know Dwight. Right. Dwight has said many genius things in his life. I only remember one of them. Uh, and it was uh, that most of us don't fear change. What we fear is loss. Right. And if we don't recognize that when we bring change, we're also bringing loss, then we're not understanding what people's uh, emotional struggle is. And right. I thought he was really right. So he was saying, oh, don't... Uh, uh, just do change without loss. He was just saying what people are responding to is not the change, it's the loss that they're gonna experience. And attend to that, attend to that, or be aware of it, yeah. And man, and this is where, why I stay in evangelical in the sense that like I stay in the Jesus story because it is a just brilliant way of telling all of this, the, the, the whole passion event and don't hold on to me for I have to go ahead. Like all of the narrative there are the, is this human narrative, right? Of which uh, the systems that we create to hold and to propel and to, to compel that narrative in the world um, wants to be about. And, and it's, it's just shocking how often we are finding ourselves uh, having to do the, the big thing as well as all the little things. And it's just really hard. Like it's, it's hard to get up every Sunday and come up with, you know, s seven to 27 minutes worth of things to say that are going to, you know, <laughs> be in service to people. One of the things I, I like right. to say, I, I, I have a group that I, I run a master's degree program for, and I'm going to say this to them on uh, next week when we have this online course um, is look, the, there's this old critique that, you know, most preachers have like five things that they have to say, and they just keep saying them over and over and over again in, in different ways. I said, take the, take that as a challenge. Try to get from two things to five. That would be great. <laughs> like, and don't think you have to have something every, every, they don't, people don't need a fresh, a fresh take from you every 168 hours. You know, uh, you can be like someone's favorite album.
and be that place in their life that that uh, reminds them of of what it is that that you've done before. And I just think we that's we've liberating <laughs> done a lot of things with our roles. And I mean, I can reflect on this twenty years after yeah. and thirty years after, and you know, uh, uh, six eight months out here. That yeah, there's just a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of things that we burden ourselves with that are. Um, but it's also how we manage our anxiety. And I don't know if, if you've realized this, but I just think all of us find a different way to sort of manage the, the chaos of the world. And so we, we do things and we come up with stuff and we look around our lives and like, yeah, all of this, whatever your this is, that's how you manage your, uh, your discomfort and your passions that, aren't, that aren't, aren't playing out. So if we can just see everyone's actions as some version of them trying their best to get along, um, maybe it helps a little. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. So I want to I steer back a little bit to vote for common good, but I think that last comment just kind of is a good segue. You really want to see the best in other people, that they're, they're really trying their best. Most yeah. of us, anyway. Yeah, yeah but th there are times when the, the best that they have to offer just isn't good enough for what is required <laughs> of them. Totally. Um, Thanks for bringing up the President of the United States again. That was a great, yeah, was a great segue. <laughs> But, uh, awesome. uh, and I so say a little bit more. I want to. I want to move toward. Mm -hmm. We've only got a few more minutes here, but I want to make sure that we include probably about ten more minutes, if that's okay. Yeah, I get. I, get, um, I want to move toward. You know, what, is, what is the pledge that that vote common good has? And say a little bit about more of that about that pledge. And I mean. Not too many people would think, oh, that's a wonderful piece of scripture that's great for weddings. Why are you talking about politics? Yeah, well, we created what we call the Love in Politics Pledge, and it's a voter's right. pledge. It's not a pledge right. that we ask candidates to take. It's right. a pledge right. that we ask voters to take. In fact, there's, there's a whole lot of groups that want to really put a lot of pressure on candidates. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? But just having been someone who's been a leader, like every candidate, everybody who's elected, they're also managing their anxiety. They've also made a set of promises. They're also living inside of a story. Like, good grief! You're just, just wasting your time trying to, you know, hold somebody to a new, a new, a new standard. The best thing we can do to change our policy is change our policymakers. So that's that's sort of the cleanest way. Uh, but so we have a policy, a pledge for voters, and we call it the Love and Politics Pledge. It's based on First Corinthians thirteen. As you, as you mentioned, which is this love passage that is often utilized at weddings because weddings in the United States and a lot of North, North American culture is the f one of the few places where you can talk out loud about a commitment of love between people in a culturally appropriate way. So we just bang that drum until we put a hole in it. Um, where I think the original context of that writing was not about uh, a, a man loving his husband or a woman loving his wife or a man loving his wife or wife or husband. It was about how a community is going to live with one another and live with the world, right? right. And right. in that context, uh, and because we've just lacked the capacity to talk about love as a driving force for our world and society and for I, I created this thing but it came out I'm, I was working on a book before Donald Trump uh, ruined the world called um, let love lead and I was trying to suggest that love should be for religious leaders and for others the primary driving force and there's something curious if I can just tangent for one minute yeah. that got me into all of this and why we ended up with the love and politics pledge and that is in, in a lot of the churches that uh, that I 
uh, know and, and work with, they have this whole system of protection of the clergy so the clergy doesn't harm the, the parishioners. Right. And so there's boundary training that goes on. And part of the boundary training is that the pastor has to be separated from the congregation. And there's certain things you can't do or say, like lots of people won't hug or there'll only be an arm hug. And there's certain things you won't do and certain things you won't say. And I love you is one of the things a lot of these trainings teach you not to do. Right. So here we have a community and a person, a pastor whose job it is to admonish people to love one another as God has loved you that we admonish us to love our enemies, to be like God and love the entire world, but I can't say I love you. Now that is whacked out to a point that is uh, under some, uh, because we can't figure out a better way to protect ourselves than letting love be the first, second, and third call. So in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, it says faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And if I have not love, I become like a clanging gong. And and, and then it's uh, it, it lists out these 17 phrases, some of which might go together, some which are separate, uh, about what sort of a description of love. It's kind of a, it's kind of a dot, dot, dot at the end, like love is all of this. And we thought that love should be the guiding force in politics. As a bonus, and on a side note, you read through 1 Corinthians 13 definition and description of love, and it sounds like the opposite of Donald Trump's Twitter feed on any given day or week. It's, it, it is just incredible, and we've done that. So, uh, so we ask people to make a commitment to make love their, their driving force. One of the people on our team named Troy Jackson at our events when he's speaking, we have different speakers all the time, he'll say, on the love and politics pledge he likes to do it and he says i just wanted you to take a look at the the description on the back love is patient love is kind love is gentle love is not rude it goes on like this he said could you insert donald trump's name in there donald trump is not donald trump is not donald trump is not and you watch people just be pained by the fact that that's not the case now is that just judgment against donald trump i sure hope not i hope it's also hey could you insert my name in there I, I would like to say, you know, Doug is not rude. Doug is not self-serving. Doug is not, uh, uh, d doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Doug delights in, d doesn't delight in evil, but Doug rejoices in good. I, I hope that that's the case. That's what I want for myself and why we can't hold one another to the standard. So the love and politics pledge is based on that. And then it's four things real quick that you will use love as the standard by which you hold to, to which you hold your elected officials. We don't think it's too much to ask someone if they're going to serve the common good to comport themselves in their public and professional lives in a way of love. Like I watch people in retail. I watch people at a Jimmy John's have to act in a certain way according to the 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 guidance of their of their job. That the president of the United States is not held to a standard of not being an asshole is unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. So that we hold them to a standard of love in their professional and public lives. I'm not even saying all in their personal lives. I'm not saying dig around, find every old text that they wrote to someone or find a mean thing someone said to someone right, else. Right. But, you know, just when you're doing your job, could you comport yourself in a way that comports with love? Uh, and then you would speak up against anyone who won't as a as political leader, and you'll call them to change and accept them if they do. That you will support candidates, but regardless of their political side, who do comport themselves in a way of love with your thanks. 
you'll recognize them. And fourthly, you'll ask politicians to hold one another accountable and no more of this. Well, I wouldn't tweet it that way, that we ask the industry of political representation to raise its standards of self-discipline and use the standard of love to do so. We don't think it's all that much, but it blows people's minds, right? Like when they're like, why are why of course why would we not do this why haven't we been doing this why why is someone not bringing it up and it's not that we stumbled onto a genius idea it's that people have known all along this is how it's supposed to go now that that picks up on on something that you know as i've looked at your materials a little bit i mean i haven't gone probably as in depth as as uh, many or as i should or as we will in the future soon but i i don't see um Oh, a promotion of particular policies or candidates as much as I see a very proactive way to engage in politics, to engage in, in, in love, to have a wise critique. It's not about it's the, the, the organization is not anti-Trump. It's pro-love and pro-loving engagement. Right. And as such, it, it's not really a partisan thing. Yeah, it shouldn't be. Look, the people that make it partisan are Republicans, not to be defensive or anything. But I voted for Republicans before for president and everything. You know, uh, like it's it's not about it's not about that. But the people for whom there is no movement that that they think any critique of Donald Trump is somehow a partisan critique. It's like, right. oh, come on, just it's more. It's more it than that. Partisan. The partisan. The partisan is Trump or anti-Trump. It's not yeah. even Republican Democrat anymore. <laughs> No. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, you're right. And look, we don't uh, our, our motto is, um, you know, make the common good your voting criteria. Right. Now, embedded in that is our notion that what the common good is, is not definable to a list. OK. That goodness is best explained by what it's best understood when you see it not in action right it's what's what's not good well stuff that's bad right and i know that can see now this is this is what requires some maturity from people this is what a spiritual person grows into is it's not about a list this is jesus's teaching it's i didn't come to abolish the law of moses i came to fulfill it Right? I think this is that same idea. I didn't come to say you shouldn't have a list of things you think are, are, are good. I'm just saying there's more to it than just that list. So each one of us knows what good is. And we begin with the assumption. Now, this is where we become like a Quaker, that we know that there's a light in you, and that light is what should be your reference point. And that, that light of goodness is what you know. And goodness is always conditional. This is where I become a postmodern Quaker. It's a conditional response where you are in a place to make a decision about what is good. And I'm not saying that that I'm not buying into this old like you know uh, the I, I have a choice between evils and nothing's good, so I just have to choose the lesser of two evils. I think that's utter nonsense. I think the only way way we end up with that is by somebody trying to pitch war. Yeah, and, and yes, I'm talking to you, you know, Augustinian uh, theologians and in, in church, uh, but. Uh, it's also just people have given up on the good, right? Um, what's lesser than evil? Good. Try to do some good. <laughs> and so we don't tell people in politics what is good. We say, you know what good is. And look, if, if, you, if voting for Donald Trump, you can find the good in that, go ahead. But don't tell yourself that good is not an option. Do good. Believe in good. And the, the thousands of people I've heard say to, to me and say publicly, 
Well, I didn't know what else I was going to do. There were no good options. Yeah, but there was a bad, there was a not good option. <laughs> and it was that guy. Right. And, and if that hasn't played out, and now look, you could say, well, I think it was also Hillary Clinton. Well, then don't vote for either one of them. But yeah, not voting for her yeah, didn't mean yeah, you yeah. had to vote for him for the yeah, love. Yeah. Now, a lot of my friends that want, want Joe Biden to be president and like me wanted Hillary Clinton to be president, they will say, yeah, but if you give people an out and tell them they don't have to vote for the Democratic candidate and they write in someone else, then you're going to get this third party thing. And not, like, OK, look, if that's the price we have to pay, that people maintaining the choice of good and not being like I'm stuck with two evils uh, is that they're going to vote for a third party. Well, great. Let's overwhelm the system with those who can connect the good to this candidate and the not good to another candidate and do what they want. And look, it's, it's not that I want to run around and try to convince people that Donald Trump is not good. If Donald Trump doesn't convince you that he's not good, there's nothing I can say that's going to convince you of that. Guy's like a self-cleaning oven. He does all the work for you. It's can you get to a point where you will act in such a way that will match what you know is good and what you know is right? Uh, my friend Tim Keel uh, said a long time ago, he said, yeah. I believe, I, yeah, all these friends, I, I believe in the whatevers of, of, uh, of, of what is good. Um, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is uh, praiseworthy, think about these such things. And he said, I love the whatever, all yeah. of it, whatever it is. It's not some things and not others. It's whatever is good. Just spend your energy on that. So we take the approach of the common good. And then we also do some biblical stuff. And we say in every tradition, they have a sense of common good, which is caring for your neighbor, blessing those uh, outside of your own group and tribe. And so we have a nice description and it's laid out in there. I think it's worth, I think it's worth people reading and, and preaching. And uh, well, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want people to think this is all we're doing, but we're trying to put together a series of resources with our electionaries, which are biblical reflections for this election, seven to nine minute sermons and prayer, uh, 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 things that we put out, like you mentioned, the Pray for the President and the Love and Politics Pledge and uh, what we think the common good is as resources for churches who don't know what else to say and talk about. And they're like, oh, I can't talk about politics. Right. We're like, well, I don't know. Maybe you could just have the people in your church take the Love and Politics Pledge. Could you do that? Could you do that? And then you begin to realize that this fear of I don't want to offend someone doesn't fit the gospel very well and certainly doesn't fit our political system very well. Yeah, and that, and that uh, is such a, a, an important point for some people who say, well, I don't want to talk about politics. Well, then you pretty much just have to close the Bible. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, the Bible is just chock full almost on every page of some uh, comment on the oppressor or how to live with uh, those you don't um, agree with. And, and living together is a politic. It's a Yes, the body politic, we tend to call it. It's, it's, it's what you do. Uh, I was listening to one politician, uh, oh, it was Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, saying, I don't like being called a politician. I would rather have somebody say, this is what it means to be a politician. Totally. Yeah, rather than disclaim it, redefine it, because that, that word's not going to go away. No, no. And, and look, I get it. Like I play, I, I play those games and I right. played them for a long time and I don't want people calling me a pastor and a minister and I want to have more flexibility than what the social construct of that name means and, and all the rest of that. But I, I don't know. I think I was kind of bullshitting a lot of that. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I still don't want to be called a pastor just because I think it, it demeans the, the role of past. It takes the pastoring that I think is a communal act and puts it into an individual. Yeah. Um, in the in a in a politician though it's like i don't know there's only one of those slots like 
to be a governor or to be a congressperson or to be a senator or a mayor or a city councilwoman. Like only one of those. It's you. Yeah. <laughs> but but I you know I think we all. Uh, should see this and, and i'll tell you if look if, if we haven't all found the the log in our own eye through seeing the gigantic speck in donald trump's eye um then what good is it right, right. i mean at the end we're going to save some people and we're going to protect this planet and we're going to stop this madness and the, the, the fever will break um both literally and metaphorically and this guy will be be not bothering the good people of this country any longer but if we all just think wow wow what was that i don't know how that happened how, how'd that come about huh. i don't know let's just move on um that's that's not i mean i'm all for moveon.org but i don't want us to move on.org on this thing i don't want us i don't want us moving on because it will just wanna... do it again uh, in, another, in another yeah manifestation i'll tell you that whoever wrote you know all ancient uh, Hebrew proverbs and said, you know, a, a fool repeats his folly the way that a dog returns to his vomit. Uh, it's been a human impulse for a very long time that we will do it again. Yes. There's, there's no doubt about it. And when we do, we will have to recognize that we've been a fool and let's, let's be wise and not foolish and, uh, and help one another to be wise and not foolish. And it's just really, really hard uh, because look, nobody's better at this than someone else. Some people just have a few more skills or a few more um, temperamental leanings or a few years more of practice. But we're all beginners at this. You know, we used to say on Solomon's porch, we're all beginners at love, and and we're we're trying and we're and we're doing the best we can some days, and we're not doing the best we can uh, other days. In fact, my my friend, um, now here's one who I don't know if if you're going to know him. Um, uh, uh, Stan Mitchell from from uh, out of Nashville. Had oh, church called, that, was, that was not part of church, our overlapping circle of yeah. Church, church called Grace Point. He tells. Uh, can, can I tell a little folksy story that I'm borrowing from uh, from Stan? Um, Stan said he had a mentor of his that was really important in his life when he was a young uh, a young man. And uh, a few years later, decades later, he he reconnected with this guy, and the guy had gone from being a fairly significant high-profile person he, uh, to having to stay at home and care for his wife who had Alzheimer's or dementia or something. And, and he went to him and he said, you know, Phil, what, uh, what, what's it like for you to now have gone from this high-platform sort of thing you were doing with all this influence to now the last five or six years living at home and basically being an in-home caregiver to your, to your wife? And the guy was Scottish and he said, you know, uh, so I'll do a terrible Scottish brogue, but he said, you know, when I die, I'm going to stand before the Lord and the Lord's going to say, uh, hello. And I'm going to say, Lord, I did the best I could. And the Lord's going to say, no, you didn't, but I love you anyway. Welcome home. <laughs> Isn't that great? I did the best I could. No, you didn't. I love it. No, you didn't. Don't worry about that. This is not, I did the best. Some days, you know what? We don't do the best we could. Right. Some days we, 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 we half-ass it. Some days we mail it in. Some days we're cruel just for our own pleasure. Some days we're just snarky because we chose not to take the high road. It's not about, I did the best I could. But there's this invitation to a home that you're going to live in. So around Vote Common Good, like I know it sounds like we're just trying to be better than everybody else, but... Um, our friend Dan Dietrich, who does work with us, he wrote this song called The Hymn for the 81%. I don't know if you've heard it on 
Yes. Cube and so on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just an incredible moment of, of insight. At the end of the song where he sort of critiques the people of his own tradition for putting kids in cages and defending the president, he moves to this part at the end and he says, um, come home, just come home. Right. You, you taught me to love the sinner, so I'm trying to love you now. Come home. You know, and that's that's this real sense. Like that's the thing I think that's in the faith that I want to hold. I think it's the thing in the American imagination. It's this thing we're trying to push forward to, is yeah, of course, error and mistake and not living up to constantly. It's but then what, right? It's that moment of could you pursue the common good then, or do you only do it if you get all your ducks in a row and everything is just right and everything's locked in, everything's everything's going going according to plan. And uh, I'll tell you, I mean, most of our churches have trouble with this. Most of our relationships, most of us, inter like the internal relationship you have in whatever, you know, inner family life conflict that we all have going on is barely able to survive this. So right. there's days where I think, you know, in light of all that, we're doing pretty good. Um, <laughs> so, all right, that was a lot of rambling. Sorry about That's that. All right. That's all right. I, I've enjoyed having this conversation with you after a couple of decades. <laughs> Just in time, you know, with those kinds of guys, <laughs> like, 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 it's, it's not an Anabaptist thing. You just wait for the time to be right. And... You know, no, I think it's more of my, uh, oh, I don't know. It's just more of my number five on the Enneagram. Ah. I, I just kind of lurk and watch and wait. Yeah. And then I, I can, then I can speak out of my deep wisdom. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad you are. And, uh, Hey, what's, what's, what's the name of your church and, and, and where, where in Idaho for people who are, so we are uh, in a suburb of Boise, Idaho, Meridian, Idaho. I think it is percentage-wise the fastest-growing community in mm -hmm. the United States. And uh, we are presently called Emmaus because that's what the core group we began with uh, called it before we even came as the planting pastors. And now we're just, if you know, as we go through our replanting process, that name is up for grabs because we find that most people can't pronounce it. And even most Christians don't know what it refers to. And so it's a, it's a great story in Luke 24 that came up in the, the lectionary this last week. But, uh, but for now, we're known as Emmaus Christian Fellowship. Uh -huh. And uh, we're in the replanting process looking for people who want to jump in and oh. work with our well, I have a, somebody I've, I'm a huge fan of named um, Stephanie Milani, who lives in that area. I will tag yes. her in this post and send her your way, unless but, you know her already. No, not yet. No. Um, yeah, those, those, those days with Alayla and created a lot of relationships and connections that I've found uh, keep overlapping as, as the years go by. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, this is, this is really great. Thanks for chatting. I, I appreciate the, the time that you've, uh, been, uh, you've provided us. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely be uh, directing our folks to take some look at Common Good, Book Common Good, and we're going to be part of, that's going to be part of our Sunday conversation. Oh, good. Uh, Zoom this week, so. Well, and we we were planning to bring our bus tour through uh, Idaho, right. and we That's got right. stopped. We're not we're not done yet. Uh, we hope there's a time when it's safe to travel, because that means the country will be in a place of safety. And if it is, then we're we're going to get back out and we'll come to Idaho. Well, that, that's right. That's what I thought. Oh, hey, you, you're not coming in April. You might have some time on your hands. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, I don't know about you. I feel busier now than ever in my life, partly because it's this Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call, and yeah. conference calls, and, and we just keep setting up all these all these things. And well, things for me have shifted uh, gears because I'm not coaching. The coaching is done. Athletic 
no sports. And, uh, but that freed up time that's easily got eaten up by other things as well. So no, it's like a Miss Pac-Man, you know, it just comes by and well, I don't know, maybe <laughs> gobbles up anything there is every little blue dot. That's time. It's been eaten. It's chewed up. All right. Well, thank you so much, Doug. Hey, my pleasure. Well, bless you to you and look forward to hear more. Right on. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Let's see. Let's see is right. Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> well, those two interviews are a lot to take in. Hopefully you'll split your time uh, on this episode by uh, you know, listening to one on one day, maybe picking up the other on another day. Uh, no reason to to spend an hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes going through all this. Uh, unless you really want to, that's fine. I don't mind. Uh, but I thought these two interviews, these two conversations really uh, are important right now for our time in this um, kind of historical moment that we are experiencing. There are uh, political issues, social issues, uh, economic challenges, and changes in the way that we relate, relate and interact with each other, that it seems like um, politics, uh, and by politics I don't mean the partisan arguments that take place, but the idea of how do we distribute power, use it effectively uh, in a uh, liberal society, by liberal I mean that kind of old... Uh, you know, 17th century idea of liberalism. How do we how do we engage uh, with our communities? And then, as as missional leaders, as folks who are involved with following Jesus, uh, how does how does love temper and affect the way that we interact? So I think uh, these two conversations really really fit together rather well. One takes a specific look at at uh, those who vote for Trump and those who identify as Christians. And the other one, even though it still comes from a Christian place um, and it deals with the issues around uh, the, the current president, there are other issues involved that um, want us to focus on motivations. You know, what is it that we are trying to do? What is it that we're trying to create? And what is the manner by which we will get there? So I think perhaps we can think of these two conversations with uh, Angela Denker and with Doug Paget as uh, two parts of the journey. Angela Denker helps us see where we have come from to get us to where we are. And Doug Paget helps us think about where do we go from here and how do we move forward? So these two conversations, a lot to digest. Hopefully you found it uh, interesting, thoughtful. If you didn't like it, that's fine. Hopefully it at least made us think. And uh, check us out on Facebook. I'd love to hear your, your comments and suggestions and uh, feedback. You can also look for the All That's Holy Blue Collar podcast on Twitter, though we don't use the Twitter handle that much at All That's Holy. Anyway. Look forward to hearing from you. Hopefully you enjoyed this these conversations and look forward to uh, more to come.
One of the things we've tried to do in the past is refrain from editing. And at this time of year, my office is on the back porch, so frequently you might be able to hear finches, sparrows, doves, as well as cars on lawnmowers. All the talking, interviews, and conversations are rough cut mainly because we never wanted to take the time to get overly precise and picky. Rather, we have great ideas, and we just simply want to present them. Start following, commenting, and sending us ideas on the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast Facebook page. Also, you can search for the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast by going to themissionplace.org. Go to the Media tab, and you can find all of the episodes of the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. As we're closing out, I want to give a big shout-out to At the Speed of Darkness for the music intro and outro. You can follow At the Speed of Darkness and support his music at Bandcamp. 